Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Julianne Lamont from the School of Literature, Languages and Linguistics here at ANU and I'm very, very pleased to be chairing this event tonight and I want to say thank you to the ANU Gender Institute for sponsoring this event and the project that it's been part of. It's wonderful to be able to be here, so thank you. Um, so the reason that we're here tonight is that over the past, I don't know, five years or so, there have been concerted efforts in Australia as elsewhere to try and fix this problem that is this kind of entrenched bias in the way that women and male, men and, and, um, and female writers are treated um, at all levels of, the, of publishing and prizes in reviewing. And so there has been this activism around prizes with the Stella Prize, um, with reviews, with the Stella Count, with readership of women's um, books, with the, um, with the Women's Reading Challenge, and so what, what we wanted to do was to bring together academics and people from all, um, all kind of different aspects of the literary field um, to ask the question, has this worked? Has it made a difference? And if not, why not? Um, so I just would, will introduce how, we'll work to, how this will work tonight. So each of our speakers will speak very briefly. They'll give a little kind of provocation, um, five to ten minutes. Um, and then I will pose some questions to the speaker and then we'll the speakers and then we'll open it up to the floor for discussion at the end. So, so I will introduce our first speaker, which is Lisa Dempster. Um, Lisa is the director and CEO of the Melbourne Writers' Festival. She's also an author and an editor and has been a publisher, so she's a really fantastic person to speak about, about this issue. So th thanks, Thank Lisa. Thank you. I always seem to go first. Um, so <laughs> today uh, I'm going to talk about how... Uh, there's a real disconnect that I see uh, between the literary in the literary industry between its female audience and how literature is curated for and presented to that audience. Um, I think the Stella Count has been so instrumental in highlighting the disparities between how writing by women and writing by men is received. Um, and while that's good, each year when the count comes out, I do end up feeling very dispirited, um, not just because of the stats, but because over the past few years, they just never really seem to change that much. Um, and I also feel dispirited because I know the Stella count only tells a part of the story, so it tells the story of how books are reviewed and who they're reviewed by. Um, but I think that the bigger picture for women in the literary industry is uh, equally depressing. Um, I'll try not to go too dark tonight. Um, but for me, another part of the story of women in literature is that women are also being underrepresented in literary programming, so at places like festivals and public events, conferences. Um, and I can only really talk about this in general because there are no statistics on this topic. Um, but I see it all the time in the literature industry, and I'm sure you do too, the idea of the all-male panel is becoming uh, increasingly seen and commented upon, which is fantastic. Um, to give you some anecdotal examples, until 2013, only two women had ever given an opening night address in the 27 years of Melbourne Writers' Festival's history. Um, and that woman was Jermaine Greer, who did it twice. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yep. Um, last year, Australia's only uh, digital culture festival had a lineup that included only 13% women. Uh, and also last year, Australia's biggest literary organisation presented a curated program stream that included a lineup of nine men and one woman. And they're not isolated incidents, but for me, they're really puzzling when you consider them in the context of who the biggest consumers of literature are which is women. Uh, it's quite well known that women are the largest group of readers and buyers of books. Um, the Guardian UK reported uh, at about this time last year that women are responsible for buying two-thirds of the books sold in the UK and that 50% of women uh, consider themselves to be avid readers compared with 26% of men. Uh, anecdotally, booksellers in Australia believe the same kind of thing. Uh, I hear the refrain, women buy the most books or women are the buyers of books all the time. At the Melbourne Writers' Festival, our audience is 75% women, uh, which sounds high, but it's actually quite normal across the arts and particularly across literature. So I'm constantly sort of puzzled between the tension between these two things, 
women, A, have a large buying power in the industry, um, but then why is that influence being ignored by gatekeepers? Um, and I know that term is fraught, um, but the people who are in charge of curating and presenting these kinds of things. Um, across my three and a bit years at Melbourne Writers Festival, our audience has grown by about 15%, um, and I'm quite proud of that. And I think that a significant contributing factor is that as an artistic director, I'm really committed to ensuring that women are given centre stage at the festival. And because our audience is largely female, I think they've really been responding to that. Like anything to do with gender, thinking about how women are represented uh, is quite complex. Uh, a gender balance across any given program is just a starting point. Um, I hear people say quite often, oh, we had equal amounts of men and women taking part in the festival, uh, which is good. Um, but there are other considerations, like how are women being represented? Uh, for example, are they being put into supporting or moderating roles? Or are they given prominence in keynote positions? Uh, are they being programmed into big venues or are they, are they being sidelined onto panels or put into much smaller venues? Uh, are they being invited to speak on topics other than gender and feminism? Uh, and if they are being invited to speak on other topics, are they, you know, so-called hard topics? Are they being invited to speak on politics, economics, science, any of those industries we traditionally associate with men? Um, I will say that as a programmer who's committed to representing women across all levels of the Melbourne Writers Festival program, it can sometimes be harder to find women to talk about particular topics. Uh, one of the challenges of programming the festival is that I really draw uh, from the industry around me. Um, so most of the people appearing in the Melbourne Writers Festival have had a book published in the past year. Um, if they're a journalist, they've won an award or they've built up their profile in some way. So for me, if there aren't good representation of women within the fields that I'm drawing from, it can be more challenging to do that programming. Um, and on that note, I think that women of colour are the most challenging group to represent within a festival because they're the least represented elsewhere. However, I think that only a bad, um, by which I mean sexist, programmer uses those challenges as an excuse for why they don't have good representation of women within their program. Uh, and I think, you know, we've all heard those excuses. Uh, I couldn't find any women. I asked a woman, but she couldn't make it. <laughs> or I just chose the best person. Um, and I've heard all the excuses. And as an artistic director, I can assure you that they are just excuses. If you're committed to something and willing to put the work in, the, there's just such a wealth of amazing, intelligent, smart women that you can draw from to put together your festival programs. I mentioned before that a challenge in talking about how women are represented in literary programming is a lack of statistics. When I look at public programs, I can see really clearly that men and their ideas are given more weight and standing compared to their female counterparts but it can be hard to talk about because it hasn't been measured in the way the Stella Count has measured uh, how books are reviewed. Um, one of the things that I'm really proud to be involved in at the moment is a new organisation called Willa, which is Women in the Literary Arts Australia, which is led by Leifa Singleton Norton. Um, among the other things that we're trying to do, we really want to start to organise an events count or a festival count um, to complement the research that is currently being undertaken by so many others and to try and represent a fuller picture of how women are being uh, presented and curated within our industry. Uh, although it's very early days and the idea of this events count is still very much just an idea, Willa really wants to look at festival programs and public programs and assess things like um, the overall number of women appearing as a starting point, um, the weighting of their appearance, so whether they're in supporting or keynote roles, and whether they're talking about uh, gender topics or softer or harder topics. I'm nearly finished. <laughs> I really believe in counts because they provide those hard statistics that really clearly showcase the problems, um, but they also give us a language to talk about it. Uh, and I do think the work of the Stella Prize has been absolutely so impactful in that regard. Um, and I really think that we need to keep arming ourselves with data and information and to keep having these conversations. Uh, and I also think that we need to ask ourselves, once we've got all this information, what is the next step? Um, you mentioned that for five years now we've been talking about this issue and there's been so many people making feminist and merit-based arguments for why women should be equally represented within our literary culture. 
Um, so despite all these discussions and conversations, the figures and stats still don't seem to be moving in the right direction uh, and we certainly still haven't achieved parity. Um, so I think for us it's about what is that next step it's not just about counting and talking, but how can we as a community really start to hold our gatekeepers to account? I don't know the answer to that, uh, but I would love to talk about it. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thank so our next speaker is Zoya Patel. And Zoya is no stranger to many of us in this room because she actually studied here. And Melinda and I were saying, we both taught her <laughs> once in the day. Um, um, so Zoya um, is the editor of feminist arts and literature journal Feminazi. Um, she was also the ACT Young Woman of the Year, I have to say, um, yeah, last year. And she was, and she's also the only ACT Stella Schools ambassador. So um, over to you, Zoya. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, I just want to clarify, it's Feminazi as in artsy, not Nazi on the end. <laughs> I'd just like to make that clear because I think it paints a picture of a very particular type of feminist journal and um, it's, it's not bad. Um, but thank you very much for having me speak here tonight. I am only going to speak um, quite briefly. Um, and I really want to focus on the role of primary prevention in embedding a culture of gender equality in literature and ensuring that the reading habits of future generations won't be influenced by the gender inequality that we're seeing currently. So, um, as Julianne said, this year I was really, uh, really excited to be announced as the inaugural Stella Prize Schools Ambassador in Canberra. Um, and just to give you a little bit of a picture of what that program does, it's one part of the broader Stella Prize activities, um, and it complements the prize and the count um, to reinforce the need for action um, in addressing the underrepresentation of women writers um, across the industry. And specifically, the Stella Schools program takes the conversation into classrooms. And it supports teachers um, to include Stella Prize shortlisted uh, novels in their curriculum. It provides professional development to educators um, to aid in that um, and also does things like um, provide pre-written teaching notes and discussion um, tools that they can use. Um, and this year they actually um, have expanded to include a program called Girls Write Up. Um, which is really cool, and they've, uh, it's a one-day program for um, young women. Um, I'm not entirely sure of the age group, to be honest, which is terrible, because I'm meant to be their ambassador. Um, but the idea is to empower and engage young women with storytelling and writing um, as, as a tool that they can use for their own expression. Um, and it's been run, uh, being run in Melbourne and Sydney, and we're really hoping to be able to expand that to the ACT next year. So why this focus on schools? So I'm just going to tell you a couple of the statistics that have been compiled, compiled by the Stella Schools program, and they're pretty alarming. So this year in the VCE curriculum, uh, male writers make up 61% of the English text list and 62% of the literature text list. Um, of the 2015 to 2020 HSE prescribed texts for all English subjects, 70% were by male writers. And texts by Australian women make up less than 14% of the New South Wales HSE English curriculum. This might not seem like such a big deal because there are a lot of men who have written excellent texts, of course, and a lot of this does come down to the fact that we teach Shakespeare and Robert Frost, although I don't know why we don't teach Adrian Rich more. Um, but I do want us to think about how reading work by primarily male authors influences our reading habits in the long term and you know, how it does really matter, not just in terms of how we read and how we value women writers, but how we value women generally and the contribution of women to our artistic life and our culture um, generally. And it matters because it does set the foundation for a culture where we ultimately prioritise and value work by male writers over that produced by women writers. And it matters because, and what Lisa has already told us, is that the gender inequality that we see in our um, awards shortlists, in critical reviews and in payment to women's writer is, women writers is largely influenced by this kind of culture that we embed quite young um, in young people through our schools. So if we really want to address this issue in the long term, I think the first step is embedding gender equitable reading practices um, in young people and in encouraging young men and young women to read work by writers of both genders and by reframing the way that we talk about women's writing so that it isn't seen as writing for women, um, but as writing that matters and that's valued across the community regardless of gender. So, um, minor anecdote, my, my college teacher was going to be here tonight, I'm kind of bummed that she's not here to hear me. <laughs> when I was in college, um, I went to Narrabunda College and we had an optional elective that was called Women in Literature, um, and it was a really great course where we read texts exclusively by women writers, and we also interrogated um, what it meant to be a woman writing um, in the 19th and 20th centuries, and what the impact of women writers was um, on the culture of society at the time. And unsurprisingly, the majority of students in the course um, were girls. 
And I really love that course and it awakened to me for the first time the idea of literature as a feminist issue. Um, but it still makes me feel kind of sad to think of all the amazing books written by women that weren't being read by boys at the time. And that's because we treat women's writing as this kind of like special interest um, genre. And I think that if there's one thing that we could really do is thinking about impacting the way that young men read um, and encouraging young men to read books written by women. Because culturally, we still think that that's slightly odd. Like, why would a guy want to read... Why would a teenage boy want to read a book written by a woman when we don't really question the validity or the relevance of, say, John Marsden writing, you know, young adult books for girls with female protagonists um, in the same way. And I think that that's an issue that creeps into other areas as well. So, um, as you were saying, literature written by people of colour, by people living with disability, by LGBTQI people. Um, and we do actually need to take affirmative action to ensure that those voices aren't seen as niche either, but are seen as relevant and powerful and necessary to our community. So I just think that literature is a site of so much social and um, collective progress and that there's a really um, significant opportunity through conversations like this and also through the Stellar Schools program to enact a long-term cultural change in that area. Thank you, Zoya. We're very proud of you. So our next speaker is Melinda Harvey. Um, and Melinda is the centre of the Director for the Book at Monash University. She's also, I should say, a well-respected um, book critic in her own right who's written book reviews in most of Australian, Australia's broadsheets. So, Melinda. Thank you, Julianne, for the invitation to come here. And I just want to extend greetings and also thanks to my old colleagues who are in the room uh, for coming along tonight. It's, uh, I think, near incontestable that the Stella Prize has ended the spate of Sausage Fest shortlist. <laughs> that was the norm in or about 2010. So this year... Just last week, um, we have a Miles Franklin shortlist of four women and one man, the same as in 2015. The Stella Prize, and this is, I think, less discussed, has actually changed the complexion of the award. The wrinkles requirement seems to be gone. <laughs> All shortlisted writers this year, with the exception of Charlotte Wood, are relative newcomers. But I'm here uh, to open up the discussion about the two literary worlds I inhabit the most, which are the worlds of book reviewing and academia. Hope you don't mind me lapsing into personal anecdote. <laughs> Suddenly, I am myself much more conscious than I once was about the kinds of books I choose to review and set on my courses. The literary editors I work for aren't aware of it, but I now live by the unspoken rule as a book critic that I review books by women exclusively. The only exception to this rule that I make is if I'm asked to review a book by what I'm calling here top-tier men. <laughs> <laughs> that is a Kitsaya, a Franzen, a Knausgaard or a Dyer. <laughs> and this is because I notice, and perhaps our counters can bear this out for us, that literature of this type is generally given to men to review, uh, which means that we have globally very few instances of women critics engaging with these writers, and I think it's important to build that kind of criticism. But I want to use the time that I have here uh, to talk about uh, the book reviewing research that Julianne and I have been doing in collaboration with the Still Account. As Julianne said in her introduction, the Still Account has noticed systemic gender bias in the book reviewing sphere. And uh, Julianne and I are writing a paper, just a shout out to Monique and Australian Humanities <laughs> Review, that we hope <laughs> that her journal <laughs> will publish us later in the year on this topic. Uh, in a nutshell, Julianne and I can now prove quantitatively that things are pretty much the same for women authors and reviewers now as they were 30 years ago in 1985. In other words, gender bias is long-standing and systemic. If you are a woman writer now, then you are just as likely to be reviewed um, in the book pages of The Australian as you were in 1985 which is not that likely because <laughs> two-thirds of the reviews that appear in The Australian now are, bo are of books by men. Not only that, but 
the chance of your book being given a feature review, that is a review of about 900 words, is exactly half that of your male counterpart. Things since 1985 have improved for women writers over at the Australian Book Review. Julianne and I have looked at these two publications in depth, though they're not at parity yet. Uh, women authors get 41% of the reviews in the Australian Book Review. If you're a woman critic, then the news is actually worse for you than it is for women writers. Only a quarter of the reviews published in the Australian and the ABR are written by women. Women critics are also two and a half times less likely than men to be commissioned to write feature-sized length reviews. Women critics are also less likely by a ratio of 1 to 10 to be a regular contributor to the Australian. Only one woman wrote 10 or more reviews for The Australian in 2013 in the book pages. I can also confirm that Stella's own findings in the 2014 count that men reviewers review men authors and women reviewers review both men and, men and women authors um, is true uh, in 1985 uh, and 2013, cementing, I think, this idea that men's books, as Zoya... Um, has mentioned, are for everybody, whereas women's books are only for women. Okay. Over to academia, and in the time I've got left, let me just say a few words about gender bias in academia, but I'm hoping that, that this might be a topic of conversation for us generally. Again, I'll lapse into personal anecdote. Uh, at Monash, where I currently teach, I teach 20th and 21st century literature, and my courses have a one-to-one -one ratio of men to women. This is only as it should be, I'm not bragging. Only academics who teach pre-19th century literature have some excuse when it comes to the underrepresentation of women on their syllabuses. As Wolfe says in A Room of One's Own, we lost our women writers from the past whenever a witch was ducked and whenever a remarkable man had a mother. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't always as scrupulously even-handed in my syllabus design as I am now, despite my research interests being always focused on women writers. I believed, and still believe, that there are texts that are important because they are good and because they have been read and thought about for centuries, and as literary scholars we need to pay attention to them. But I am now so much more aware than I once was that part of the problem is that women's texts simply aren't discussed enough. Retrieving women writers from obscurity is one of the jobs, but then there is the task of creating a richness of response when these texts are retrieved and the job of putting these texts into relation with other texts and not just texts by women. Mm. Men's texts will continue to choose themselves or come to mind first unless these two things, retrieval and response, uh, occur. I look around this room uh, and I'm, I see many people who are exemplars in this regard too. <laughs> and I look forward to hearing their observations. <coughs> I want to mention that um, I think it is a little strange uh, that we haven't had any student-led feminist interventions in the um, Australian tertiary sector of the kind that we're current, currently seeing overseas. I was witness to one in Berlin when I was there at the end of last year at Bard College, but there's also one going on right now at Yale University. Mm. Some of you will be aware of it. There at Yale, English majors have recently written and signed a petition to end the requirement that they spend two semesters studying the major English poets. I'll read from their petition. It is possible to graduate with a degree in English language and literature by exclusively reading the works of mostly wealthy white men. Many students do not read a single female author in the two foundational courses for their major. This department actively contributes to the erasure of history. We undergraduate students in the Yale English department write to urge the faculty to reevaluate re-evaluate the undergraduate curriculum. It is your responsibility as educators to listen to student voices. We have spoken, we are, we are speaking, pay attention. <laughs> I'm wondering why we haven't seen this happen yet. It's possibly because there are so many people doing good work uh, in the university sector, and I think that's true. I think um, there are a lot of people upholding diversity in, in terms of curriculum. 
I'm also wondering if it um, perhaps more solemnly has something to do with the fact that we can no longer offer historical coverage um, in English departments. I think historical coverage necessarily raises questions around the invisibility of women and due to um, the neoliberal intervention in our universities, um, departments can no longer um, provide that kind of curriculum to their students. For me, the battle, the battle really uh, exists in our journals, in our conferences, and in our university hierarchies. I have a couple of examples in mind that I'm just so hesitant to talk about, so I'm going to talk about the one I feel like I can. <laughs> uh, this, this example that comes to mind um, is a recent issue of a major Australian journal in modernist, modernist studies. In this journal issue, only one of the 12 academics published in the issue was a woman. The writers who were discussed in the seven essays and three reviews were all men. That is, no modernist woman was discussed in any substantial way in the issue at all. I'm also thinking, and I can talk about this, of Deb Verhoeven's recent call to arms at the Global Digital Humanities uh, Conference, which was in July last year, and perhaps mm. a few of I you was were there. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in that uh, speech, um, Deb asked us to have at the forefront of our minds the representation of women as keynotes in our conferences. And this is something that, for me personally, has been uh, an issue in the last few years. And I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll better stop. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Melinda. We're going to finish our speakers with two people who are at the coalface of this at the moment. Um, Imogen Matthew and Ashley Orr are both um, PhD candidates in the School of Literature, Languages and Linguistics at ANU. Um, Imogen is writing about Anita Heist and the public intellectual, um, and Ashley is writing about um, neo-Victorian fiction and the relationship between gender ideolo ideology in that fiction and, and now. Um, and both of them have been working on the 2015 count. They have spent hours and hours collecting statistics about book reviewing in Australia for last year. Um, and this was partly supported by um, a grant from the Gender Institute. Um, so they're going to speak a little bit about that experience. So thanks, guys. Well, we can describe firstly what we did, um, and then we can tell you a little bit about what we found. Um, so we were um, uh, collecting data from some of the major um, dailies. So the Stella Count organises with some publications to get that data directly. Um, not all of them provide that, so we've been going through the, um, we went through the ABR. Um, yeah. The Australian, um, the West Australian, the Korea yeah. um, Mail. <laughs> so I think we came up with about two, two and a half thousand responses, which is not the entire data set, so that might be around 4,000 yeah. overall. Yeah, so. Yeah. Um, so we did roughly half and we recorded information on um, the gender of the author as well as the gender of the reviewer and a measure of prominence which could be the size of the review, whether there was a picture attached to the review, whether it was a composite review um, and some information on the nationality of the author but that was a little bit harder to collect. Um, so we thought we could talk about genre and prominence. Um, this afternoon I just did some quick uh, statistics which I can share with you. Or oh, did you want to? Yeah. Do you, I yeah. So I um, noticed there are a few big um, reviewers who had recurred fairly um, often. Um, some of you might be familiar with Peter Craven. Um, so he reviewed across the Australian Book Review, The Weekend, Australian and The Age. And unfortunately, um, only 26% of his reviews that, that we collected were um, by women, um, which was one of the smaller percentages of the reviewers. Um, I also noticed, I, so I looked after The Age and the Australian Book Review, and in the age, they have regular capsule reviews. Um, 
and that's they have four regular reviewers: um, Cameron Woodhead, Steve Carroll, um, Karen Goldsworthy, and um, Fiona Cap. And it was women were fairly consistently reviewed less than men's. And what I can take away from that is that even if there's some um, attempt at gender parity amongst the reviewers, so there were two males, two females equally represented over fiction and non-fiction, women were almost unanimously under-reviewed. Um, there were a few, so I think Karen Goldsworthy reviewed 55% um, female authors, um, but that was probably the highest percentage of any reviewer. Um, and she was reviewing fiction, so there were more review, um, reviews of female writers um, by female reviewers for fiction. Um, when it comes to non-fiction, it was a lot smaller. So Steve Carroll and Fiona Cap, who both looked regularly at non-fiction, reviewed 40% and 25% female. So a female reviewer of non-fiction is more likely to review women, but even that is under 50%. So um, what Ashley and I intuitively felt um, having gone through all these reviews was that women were underrepresented in non-fiction and potentially equal in fiction. Um, what these rough statistics showed was not only that our intuitions were correct but they were um, worse than we thought. Um, yeah, so did you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean getting back to that sort of issue of prominence that Imogen raised, I mean, I think, you know, it, I think size does matter in a reviewing space and it ties in with what Melinda said in terms of it's so rare or so rare from the publications that I looked at that women reviewers are given the space to write a feature review. And... That matters because it's not always told in the in if you only look at the gender statistics. So even if the the gender breakup of reviewers looks okay, maybe not great, it's possibly even worse than that statistic tells because it's about who's getting space on the page. And you know, in in the Australian, in the West Australian, in the Courier Mail, women reviewers are consistently getting those smaller you know, um, capture reviews, like Imogen said, but even the medium, medium-sized reviews. So it's it's not only about well, how many do we have, but it's about who's who's really getting the chance to, you know, um, to have a a voice and a and a you know, and a really influential voice in that in that space of, of newspaper reviewing. And I think um, I think genre does tie into that because you know and it's difficult to say you know whether it's causal or you know whether it's whether it's um, entirely review a choice about what's getting reviewed but you'll often see genre fiction confined to those really small review spaces and you know that's an area that's traditionally associated with women so for example in these kind of composite reviews that we're counting um, which is, you know, often a large review, but they might deal with a number of books. Came across several that are reviews of, of chick lit, you know, so this is a, it's a female-dominated area, and it looks great for the numbers. It's like, yeah, 20 books by women. This is fantastic. What only looking at that doesn't tell you is that, yes, this is a large review. If you're stacking 20 books into a large review, how much attention are you actually giving them in the review space? where it was far more common to see a kind of a non-fiction review, um, composite review of maybe two books, mm. you know. So it does say something about about the value we place on different kinds of, of reading material. Mm. And if you think about a newspaper and if you think about a readership of a newspaper, you know, um, I, I'm really not convinced that they're... That their judgment of what people want to read or what people are reading is... Is you know reflected in that in that review space because it is so non-fiction dominated, and um, you know even even when um, when non-fiction by women is attended to, I found that it was far more likely to be when those women are tackling you know serious issues. 
So if you're a woman writing about the military or about the economy, then maybe you'll get some, some you know, maybe you'll get a medium review of your non-fiction book. And I just think that says a lot about the way that kind of gender, gender and genre really influence each other and then have a flow-on effect to the review space as well. Yeah. I'll go have just a yeah, quick, quick thing. So Belinda also, oh, Melinda and Julianne got us to, um, so we um, classified non-fiction re- reviews. So we also um, gave a, sefer- a separate classification to um, biography and memoir. And I was really surprised <laughs> at how many biographies <laughs> and memoirs were reviewed uh, as, as part of the non-fiction car- category. It was huge and often just going through these small capsule reviews, easily almost two-thirds to sometimes all four would be biography or memoir. Um, and that's really, really a, a large category. But in my, my quick um, and dirty statistics, only 34%, and this is of um, just the um, newspapers that Ashley and I audited, 34% were women for biography, memoir, and 27%. For non-fiction, um, so those I guess two separate categories, but as a whole, um, very underrepresented in a non-fiction um, genre. And the other thing that I noticed that was really interesting to me was one particular reviewer um, called Sue Turnbull, who's who works as an academic, I think, at the University of Wollongong, um, and she reviewed crime fiction often in composite reviews, but. Um, I guess this is a good example of a female reviewer who's not reviewing works by women. Um, so only 23% of the crime fiction that she reviewed was written by women. And I think the other interesting point that comes into that, because I'd come across her in my research for my thesis, and so I knew who she was, and I was excited to see her reviewing. Um, but we were also asked to look out for the biographical details of the reviewers. And so none of her reviews... Um, had any gave any indication that she was an academic or that she um, worked at this day job, very important day job that looked at this uh, a crime fiction from an academic perspective. But when I'd pick up Melinda's reviews or um, Peter Pierce, um, there'd be a lot of you know this person is an academic and has done this thing, and so it was interesting to me as well that she's a woman reviewing genre fiction but there was absolutely no indication of her academic credentials behind that when that could be the case for more literary uh, or reviews of literary fiction. Yeah. And just one more thing on that um, kind of biographical mm. genre that you mentioned. This is totally anecdotal, so I'm not saying that this is representative, but I was so struck by one review in The Australian, which was a biography of... Astley, fantastic, you know, woman writer. And it was a feature review, and I was like, this is incredible. (laughs) (laughs) The photo in the review, massive review, first page of the Australian book section, Patrick White. Massive photo of Patrick White, and a reference in the kind of, you know, the snippets they pull out and bold to her stalking him. Why are we valuing when we do? <laughs> why are we valuing them by their relationship to a more prominent man? Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We'll thank both of them. That's great. <laughs> and as someone who knows how tedious collecting these statistics can be, I want to thank you from yeah. all of us for your service to the field. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so I'm going to take the chair's prerogative and ask a few questions. Um, now, um, and I wanted to ask to start with the most obvious, but perhaps the most difficult question, which is why does this matter? You know, we're all acting on the assumption that it does. I mean, is this just about literature or is it about more than just literature? I think it matters because it's part of a broader culture of gender inequality. Yeah. And we know that that broader culture of gender inequality contributes to all kinds of really awful things at the far end of the scale, like, for example, domestic violence, which mm. um, we're finally seeing some heightened awareness of, um, or the fact that older women are more likely to be homeless because um, of the way that we value women's work. So mm. I think that you can easily draw a link between mm. the cultural value that we place on um, art produced by women um, and the the kind of 
broader impact that that attitude has on the way that we value women's lives and their safety and their contributions more generally. Hmm. I have a lot of research that I could give to people. <laughs> <laughs> I can email it to you. <laughs> I do work in this space yeah. professionally. So. Yeah. I couldn't say it better than that. No. It's yeah. a wonderful summary. Yeah. Well, thank you. I want to add, I mean, I think I was listening to the Triple J Hottest 100 and that was mm. um, earlier this year. And I think that by doing this kind of work, it encourages people in other fields to take similar notice and I think um, I'm not sure who the woman was who did it but she said well you're more likely to have gone to St Kevin's College in Melbourne and win the Triple Day Hottest 100 than to be a woman mm. and I think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that this kind of work really influence, like helps people to be aware um, of the choices um, that sort of make up our listening and like, reading um, pursuits, but also as Melinda said, I think that for me doing this work, I've been more aware of my reading choices, and I want to make right my reading. Well, I think all reading choices are political, whether that's implicit or explicit. Mm-hmm. But I want to be more directed with my reading for for pleasure, and that make sure that I'm reading not just sort of in line with the the, the bias, mm-hmm. but um, mm-hmm. trying to counter that bias. So. Yeah. Well, to follow on from that, I want to ask about counting. So many of us are literary studies academics, many of us in this room, and we're much more comfortable with novels than with (laughs) Excel spreadsheets as a general rule. And yet many of us have spent hours and hours recently looking at Excel spreadsheets. I mean, I know you mentioned it briefly, Lisa, but why does it matter to count? Why have we all all of a sudden become bean counters in in this way, cultural bean counters, if you like? It just tells a story so quickly and so Mm. eloquently. So uh, I'd never really thought about these issues before until I saw Sophie Cunningham do the uh, keynote on feminism at the Melbourne Writers Festival in 2011, which sparked, you know, so much of this intense discussion and action. And she used a lot of statistics in Mm. that speech. And she has said many times since then that statistics don't, lie so if you're looking at pie chat and it's showing that women are only being represented a third of the time like that's that's a fact that's inarguable and I feel like often when we talk about the representation of women or different kinds of people that narrative can sound very emotional or feelingsy based um, which for some people feels irrelevant but then when you have that hard statistic and the percentage that's that's the fact um, and so it's inarguable would anyone like to Add anything that's why that? I felt the need to be like, I'm not just saying these things. Like, it is research <laughs> yeah. that draws these links um, in the broader picture of gender equality. And, I mean, it's true of any any kind of feminist movement or any aspect of the feminist movement does. And I think this is probably something that we're kind of realising now, um, does need to be able to point to the, to the hard facts because at the point at which you're going into a politician's office and saying, this is something that matters and we need to address this as a policy measure, like, you have to be able to provide that evidence because people don't care about the lived experiences of women you know I can't go in and say well you know I walk past a homeless woman every day um, on my way to work um, and and this is a reality of her life which has been caused by x y and z if I go in and say did you know that um, because of the burden of older women experiencing homelessness we're spending x many billion dollars um, on these services that's going to you know draw a better a better more powerful link and I think it's true of literature as well and it's true of art Um, if you can point to something that's very bold and um, can't be argued away in any other kind of way. You can't just say, well, people just choose to read, mm. you know, male writers over women writers, or men are just better writers. That's one that I used or to Or it just hear. happened that way. <laughs> like, but it always happens the that same way. way. <laughs> like, when it's going to happen the other way? Like, never. <laughs> exactly. And I think when you can paint the picture in all these different areas of the industry, that's what's really powerful because at that point, like, how do you ignore that? You can't really dismiss it. Mm. Mm. It's also a way of, uh, it's almost like speaking a foreign language, you know, mm. it, it, it's a way of, I think we all, you know, we all agree. <laughs> and it's a way of being able to speak to others mm. who are outside the, outside the sector mm. uh, about the situation uh, in, the la- in a language that they can understand. Mm. But if what you're pointing to is that nothing has changed much in 30 years... And maybe, I don't know, are the statistics then that meaningful if nothing is... I know, or maybe they well, might change in another 30 yeah, years. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that Julianne and I have discovered is that things like st- 
the Stella count have actually taken place several times in the past. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so they're, wow. they're, they're okay. like blips yeah. of mm. interest mm. in quant- trying to mm. quantify gender bias, <coughs> but then action okay. doesn't take place. Yeah. And so, yeah, mm. it's, it's kind of almost like a, a sort of situation where we keep going yeah. in circles. Mm. It'll be interesting to see if this one mm. edges yeah. us. Okay. And yeah. some things shift. I mean, I think we've found that that there is a bit of an increase in the number of books by women that are being reviewed, but the fact that the reviewers aren't shifting, I mean, that suggests that maybe the Stella Prize has had an impact on how people are thinking about... Um, I yeah. definitely think the Stella Prize had a massive impact. So as a festival director, I get sent a lot of books. So whenever a publisher is releasing a new book, they send it to me. Um, and one of the things that publishers usually do is they pick one or two sort of key titles a year. They just really back. So they put a lot of money into the marketing and publicity and they send it out with a press release. It's like, this is the book of the year. <laughs> um, and this year, every book of the year I got from an independent publisher was by a woman. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I'd ever seen that. So mm-hmm. I think there's uh, an increasing awareness in our industry of uh, the appetite for writing by women um, and the awareness of the fact that it's great and we should be supporting it. Um, I keep coming back to this question of, well, why do the reviews not reflect personal Mm. – like, why do the reviews not reflect the reading preferences of Mm. the audiences? Uh, And I sort of get stuck there and I feel like that's where – how do we (laughs) – how do I say this in a way that's not going to be offensive? <laughs> I feel like in any industry there are gatekeepers. So, you know, someone in my role, that's traditionally a kind of gatekeeper kind of role where I get to choose what gets curated for a big event. I, I hope people don't see me as a gatekeeper. Um, I don't consider myself to be a gatekeeper. Um, you know, the style of programming I do is very audience-driven, so I understand, I try to understand who they are and their motivations for attending, and then I curate the program for them. But I think a more traditional model of, you know, curation or editorship is to really rely on your expertise. So to say, I know what's best and this is my (laughs) taste and opinion. And I think that's shifting overall in our culture, but it's not necessarily shifting enough. So, I mean, one of the things I always wonder when the Stella count comes out is, is someone calling the editors of these journals? Like, has anyone called um, the mm. books editor at the Australian and said, "Can you make a comment on this? Mm. And can you make a comment on the mm. fact that it hasn't changed year on year?" Um, they tend to say no comment. <laughs> they tend to say no comment. And so then that's just, you know, that's frustrating. I mm. think when you hear no comment, it just means I don't care. But isn't that also because I mean, book reviews are being published in quite conservative traditional like places. That, you know, the traditional media is not a site of a lot of progress in a lot of ways. <laughs> That's true. And really, like, I think the reason why there's actually a strong mainstream cultural cringe now towards things like the all-male panel mm. and the all-male shortlist, and that's because there's cultural capital associated with feminism and gender equality right now, and that feeds into these areas where they are trying to address a, a younger audience or a different audience mm. or an audience who are more aware of these issues. And mm. I just don't think the editor at The Australian feels like, you know, they need to invest in that audience because their audience... You know, over it's here, not that. like yeah. this group of people who mm. will always purchase, um, you know, the new Kurt Sale, um, mm. but mm. probably won't think about purchasing, you know, the athlete. So, mm. yeah. Mm. That might be a good time to open it up to the floor. I wonder, I'm, I'm expecting that people have strong opinions about some of this. We have a question already, a hand shot. Shut yeah, up. Not, a, not an opinion, it's yeah. a question, I suppose. Yeah. I was just interested to know if you're talking about the gatekeepers and, you know, traditional media, print media. was a transition as we moved from more traditional media into more digital media and then also if you've ever, if you have any um, thoughts or anecdotes on the sort of stratification and whether there's an age-based bias within this. So I come out of the sciences, engineering, mm. so you two have the same stats for 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Women yeah. Um, And they've had hard stats for 30 years, mm. not done a lot, but in the sciences there actually is a, an age stratification, so as um, sort of middle-class white men, I suppose, have, have retired, it mm. actually has changed quite dramatically in terms of how women have entered mm. the sciences in different positions. I was just, I was just wondering if you had any comments or sort of statistics on that side of things. Mm. I, don't, I couldn't speak to the age. I think this, the comment you made is really interesting. I think online there is a more robust culture of reviewing books by women. Yeah. Um, you know, there are a lot of bloggers, female bloggers, I think, um, I don't know the stats off the top of my head, but the majority of Goodreads users are mm-hmm. women. So there's massive communities of 
people, but mostly women out there, reading women, sharing books by women, talking about these books because they're buying the books. Um, but for some reason, that sort of collective action doesn't filter through to the more traditional print media um, for reasons that we've discussed. Yeah. <laughs> also, like I think part of what your question was getting at was um, as print media has been forced to go online, has that has transition that affected those traditional news outlets, and I would say not very much. Mm. Really all it is is that online you have competition from independent sources of, mm. of criticism and, um, you know, independent reviewers, and I don't know um, where you publish all of your reviews, Melinda, but I imagine that that <coughs> makes it easier to pitch, um, you know, if you're really interested in, in a particular female author who might not have the, the kind of profile um, that print media would expect, um, you mm. can actually push that through a different through a different medium. Hmm. I don't necessarily think it is always about profile, though. I think sometimes it's just about authority. I think mm. often you could see um, a male and a female book side by side and the writing of is of equal quality, but the attention and authority has been given to one, mm -hmm. and that becomes mm. a self-fulfilling cycle. Mm. And so then people are like, oh, that book's not as good or not as weighty mm. or not as literary, but actually it is, mm. but it just wasn't given that same chance to succeed. Oh, mm. sorry, by profile I mean more like, for a woman to be given that level of uh, attention yes. in mm. a traditional yeah. um, print yeah. uh, medium, they would have to be some kind of star. Like, they would yeah. have to have already had, you know, that or have stalked, by a... have stalked a famous yeah. person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the other thing that we've noticed, I mean, one of the effects of the rise of these online things, and, and I guess the problem with print media and the business model of print media is that the space is shrinking mm. significantly. And so what it means is, I mean, what we found was that just the sheer number of reviews in both of the publications we looked at has halved. And so that means that just there's, there's, there's it entrenches the problem, mm. really. Yeah, I'll just yeah. continue. That's how I was going to respond mm. to, the, to the question. Uh, what, we've, what we've noticed is that uh, capsule reviews in particular have disappeared from both ABR and The Australian. And uh, what we theorise, speculate, is that those capsule reviews actually have, have moved online, you know, because the mm. kind of space that uh, programs like Goodreads um, give you for writing reviews is about capsule, capsule mm -hmm. length. And the slack, as in 85, we, Julianne and I like to call them the women sandwich makers. The, the, there was a lot of women writing capsule reviews in 1985, but now we think those women, the sandwich makers, are reviewing uh, online in Goodreads, mm. yeah, or on on Amazon.com. Mm. So actually, um, even though what we're seeing in the mainstream um, areas of uh, book reviewing is that the reviews are getting bigger, and arguably that's a, a good thing. You know, there's more room for people to um, to evaluate books to discuss them analytically um, yes what we're we're still seeing that men are kind of controlling that space of analysis and evaluation mm. can I just add I'm sorry yeah. <laughs> just in response to your question too um, oh, oh just about the Australian so what what's happened online is that actually I think and this was at the same time that the Stella Prize got started was that there was an online reading challenge called the Australian Women Writers Challenge and that's been incredibly successful and popular and it's become a really big um, I think internet phenomenon at least in the Australian reading and online reviewing community where there's a very concerted attempt to read and review Australian women authors and I think it's primarily women who are doing this but there is a lot of it's almost more dynamic I think online particularly in these efforts to review female writers than perhaps in traditional mm. spaces. Sorry Roseanne I didn't see you at the beginning there. Okay somebody else wants to Oh sorry. Oh. Sorry we Yes <clears throat> my question is actually very similar to the question we just heard and it seems to me that the, <clears throat> the market really misses who is making decisions. Mm. In other words, with general shopping, mm. the market is very aware that women make the decisions. Mm. In terms of books, it doesn't seem to be in the print media. Mm. And obviously what we heard too is that the independent blogging sphere, mm -hmm. uh, there women have more of an opportunity. Mm. But simply that the market misses who is actually making decisions mm. and who is hiring the reviewers mm. and who is giving space to it. And in the end, <coughs> you read what's available. Mm. Mm. 
and perhaps the statistics would change drastically if there was more an awareness of the market. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Anyone want to respond to that? Yeah, I think I'm going to come at that sort of a little bit um, peripherally, but arguably, I'm playing devil's advocate here, the traditional book reviewing space is losing authority, <laughs> arguably. And I think maybe sites like Goodreads, blogs, mm. are actually, you know, that are women-dominated, are actually helping readers find books in a way that perhaps, um, you know, the mainstream places used to in 1985. Mm. Um, nonetheless, um, you know, one of the things Julianne and I are thinking about is, you know, what are, what are book reviews, traditional book reviews for? And certainly as literary studies academics, we use them. You know, mm. we use them to find out how a book was received at the time of its publication. And so in that sense, they still have... Um, I think quite a bit of, a, of importance in terms of the, the work we do as scholars. Mm. And so in that sense, it, it, they are still worthy of um, consideration in terms of the longevity, um, you know, the life cycle of a book and um, of canon, you know, issues around canon making. Mm. Yeah, I think one of the challenges for literature is about that idea of the canon. So literature is not just a market, in which case we'd be very clear to see, you know, what was winning, what was the best, all mm. those kinds of things. But it's actually an art form as well. Mm. And so, therefore, it's who's winning prizes and who's getting critically reviewed by the best critics is going to, you know, lead into who's remembered in 20 years' time. And the statistics that Zoya read out about sort of the percentage of books that we're reading in high school by men versus women, you know, we want to, we want to stop that. And so mm. the only way to do that is to make sure that women are winning prizes and getting mm. that critical attention. Yeah. And linked to that, though, is, um, you know, online and in, in communities of online, um, like Women Writers Online, one of the things that comes up a lot is just actually finding the time and space to create literature when, you know, a lot of women have children and are expected to take on caring responsibilities and that actually limits the amount of productivity you can have. And that's, like, the other side of the conversation is really, like, when, when can women... Um, write literature, but in the same sense, like when can women appear at the festivals and speak at the things and be advocates for their own work? Because there is a broader picture at play here that does limit um, the ability of a lot of women to participate in the industry in that way. Um, and it does it links to that broader economic issue. Mm. But I think that that also goes for reviewing as well. I mean, mm. if, if, the, uh, if, you know, these capture reviews are, you know, where they do still exist, dominated by women. And, you know, we, you know yeah. we're aware that newspaper culture mm. pays, you know, per word per or these word, kinds of yeah. things, you know. And if some of those that have disappeared are moving online to perhaps these unpaid platforms, although, you know, the, there is some sense in which some Amazon and Goodreads reviewers get kind of benefits for reviewing. Mm. But it still says something about women having the space not only to write but to review, to have a voice and a paid voice... Mm in this area that, you know, that they are considered to have the authority to, to speak about these things and to be, to be paid for it. Mm. 
And I'd say, I mean, we found when we started looking at repeat reviewers, I mean, the people who are most who are writing repeated reviews and are most able to kind of make something like a living out of it, well, probably not much of a living, but something like a living, are mostly men. Um, yeah. Now, as in 1985. Yeah, I think it needs yeah. to be said. In the world of book reviewing, there is no living to be made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, um, I think pay rates haven't actually gone up in the last what, 20 years. Yeah. Mm. Um, uh, that said, there are, when you dig a little bit deeper and you get it more involved in the in the, the sphere, there are pay rates and pay rates. Uh, so <laughs> what you discover is that some, sometimes your male colleague is actually earning maybe 10 or 20 cents more a word than you are mm-hmm. um, in, a, in, in, in a publication. Um, that hasn't happened to me, but um, I, I know that that is the case. That you know of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, have you? Um, thank you so much really great. Um, and I guess my question is a bit of a devil's advocate one, because I agree with everything you're saying about editors and policy makers and the need for this culture to shift. But I guess it's a question that comes back to the, I think you mentioned authority. And there is this, um, I mean, you're kind of mapping the fact that women are readers of women, but there is this gap when it comes to reviewing. But I just wonder about, and I guess it comes back to some of the points Melinda made about academia as well, because there are now studies also about um, citations, mm. and men, mm. men cite other men, but also student evaluations, mm. yeah. um, that men just do better than student mm. evaluations. Um, so that um, even young women will see men as authority figures, mm. even if their favourite books are chiclet books, or mm. you know, and they love sharing their feelings. And mm. Do you know what I mean? There is this mm. kind of cultural gap between... Mm what both young men and young women will believe um, when they hear the voice of a man mm. and what they will believe when they hear the voice of a woman, say, in the classroom. Um, so, I, you know, I think this is a fantastic initiative because it feels like a, an institutional level as well as a um, broader cultural level that it's starting a conversation that may have also dropped out partly to do with I know we have two gender studies academics. <laughs> <laughs> but to about, um, you know, gender studies has declined in mm. the university. So, so should we be teaching some women? No, 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 actually. We should be teaching. Isn't it about teaching young women about how you think differently about authority mm. and about yeah. judgment and taste? Um, so I just wondered to what extent kind of shifting the minds of the cultural policy makers or the reviewers when we, you know, you, you mentioned, I think, the top, the Triple J Top 100. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I, I imagine young 14-year-olds mm-hmm. or 13-year-olds, it's like voting for a street yeah. idol. They're yeah. going to vote mm-hmm. for the young man mm-hmm. yeah, but um, in that situation. So... So it's a very, I guess I'm asking a question that's probably impossible to answer about very deep-seated yeah. mm. gendered questions. Yeah. Mm. I, can I just quickly, the Triple J example is a really interesting one because this year they actually released like a report to coincide with um, uh, International Women's Day about this very issue and they tracked their own, like, well, music, women in music across uh, the Australian industry. But, you know, in February their playlist was 61%. Um, artists that were either solo um, men or all-male bands. So mm. partly it is also what people are given access to. But I do mm. think that you're right, the culture does need to be shifted. And I think that primary prevention and working in schools is a really big part of that because I grew up thinking that my favourite writers were like Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald <laughs> and I had like my aha moment in that women in literature class where I was like, wait a minute, why do I feel the need to distance myself from the books that I actually love? Because the books that I grew up loving were all by women. You know, like the books that I read as a, as a child, but I felt like I had to, to have any authority or to have any legitimacy with my peers. Um, as a lover of literature, I needed to like these these authors that I do love, but no more than I love Bulls or no more than I love, you know, George Eliot, who was a woman. Um, so I, think, I do think that that primary prevention aspect is really important. Mm. Sorry, Lisa, you were going to say something. Just I think the question of authority is really important. I think, you know, you talked about how we might be making change at cultural level, institutional level, um, but what needs to happen and hopefully one day will happen if we don't just keep 
going in these cycles, like the change needs to happen at a structural level because we do live, you know, within sort of patriarchal structure which does value women less and so we can collectively try to value them more and read more and things like that but unless the real structures of society change, we're always going to be caught in these loops. I think I was the first to say patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone should drink. <laughs> We're always good feeling. <laughs> yes, another question. My question is probably related, but it's to do with, um, um, and I think it's the gatekeepers, so people who run the literature festivals, people who decide what literature is, and if you think back to the 19th century, it was mostly men who then said, oh, well, you know, Jane Austen's not too bad because of such and such. And so, you know, I come from a genre side of things, I'm looking at feminism and romance fiction, and romance fiction is very much marginalised and it's read mostly by women. And some feminist scholars have said, like, um, I just want to think of her name now, um, God wait. Um, she was saying that women's fiction is overlooked generally. Um, God wait, sorry. Um, so, what I'm saying is that uh, related to that, like, patriarchy maybe is deciding what is literature, so then what is valued, what is reviewed, and maybe we should be looking at what are the gatekeepers actually looking and what are we valuing. So romance fiction is one of the most popular, you know, uh, fiction read by, and mostly read by women, but it doesn't get reviewed, mm -hmm. especially in print media. Yes. But you've got The Rosie Project written by a man, yeah. and it's <laughs> a bestseller, and everybody's talking about how wonderful it is, but it's a romance story. Mm. And it's not only... Um, that it doesn't get reviewed, like romance is, it's, you know, people talk about it in very derogatory terms, it's very marginalised, I think it's probably the most marginalised genre. I was so interested that you did that research into genre, because I think that really plays a big part in that. Mm. Mm. And it was it Nicholas Sparks, who writes romances but refuses to call them romances, gets really angry about it. Like, mm. Well, Nora Roberts has, like, sold 60 million books. Yeah. Right? And she was quoted as saying, she said... You know, I write these books, but if a man writes it, it becomes a bestseller, and everybody thinks, "Oh my God, it's literature." But yeah. I write it, you know, every day. And it's about so, authority as well. Yeah. yeah. So it's to do with that: who decides what is literature, hmm. and the boundaries around genre, mm -hmm. and what women read, and what they value, and what. Uh, and I write a festival. One I don't know what Melbourne's got this year, but last year Sydney <coughs> actually had a romance panel. This year they don't. Mm. And I'm not sure it's because my editor dropped the C-bomb or what. <laughs> <laughs> Last year we were proud to partner with the Romance Writers Convention, which mm. was on in Melbourne at the same time as the festival. We did do romance and romance definitely coming back to Melbourne Writers Festival this year. Oh, that's great. <laughs> we have time for one more. Yes? Um, I'm, I'm very hooked into the online, what's happening online with the... Australian Women Writers Challenge, things like that. I'm wondering if there are any statistics on how the sales of books written by women increased with things like the Australian Writers Festival, with the general level of awareness and advocacy for women authors increasing online. I don't know, but I do know that... Um the winners of the Stella Prize have seen a market increase in sales mm. as per when the Miles Franklin like winner is awarded. Mm. Um, but I don't know if there's been research in the industry overall, but I think that's such an interesting question. Like, mm. it'd be good to go back five years ago and look at the data mm. of books by women, which mm. we could probably get from Bookscan. Book so, mm. yeah. Mm. Project. There's a project you. for someone. <laughs> well, That's the Stella Prize winner. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's probably a good good note to end tonight. <laughs> yeah. Could you please oh, join me um, <laughs> thanking our wonderful panelists tonight? We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more. <laughs>